Hebrews 11. If you found it, why don't you stand with me and let's read together God's word. Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 23. By way of reminder, we are continuing our study of this hall of faith, these heroes of the faith. We've studied Abel. We've studied Enoch. We have studied Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, even Sarah has been thrown into the mix. But today, beginning in verse 23, we're going to see arguably the most famed of all the men of the Old Testament. This man is so famous that when the President of the United States stands in that famed lectern and delivers his annual State of the Union address, did you know in that great hall of Congress, that House of Representatives, this man's visage is emblazoned on the wall opposite him, staring at him, so to speak, as he delivers that State of the Union. This man, this great lawgiver, famed in many cultures for his formative role in bringing law to society, is the famed Moses. And Moses is included in the hall of faith for reasons that I think will stir your soul and strengthen your faith. So don't take my word for it. Let's look, beginning in verse 23, and allow me to read down for us to verse 28. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. You see, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now by faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, and here's why. He endured as seeing him who is invisible, and by faith he kept the Passover. He sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Why don't you join me now? Ask God to help us as we pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would now come and by the power of your spirit grant all in this room ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand your word. Lord, would you help us to see what Moses saw? And I ask this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know what the most repeated command in all the Bible is? You perhaps heard this before, it bears repeating. Is it the command to love the Lord your God? Sounds like a reasonable answer because it is surely replete in the Bible. It's not that. Is it the command to trust Him? My word, you can barely read a page of the Bible without an explicit or implicit call to trust God. Is, is that the most repeated command? Of course it's not. You've probably heard this before. The most common, oft-repeated command in all the Bible is fear not. Don't be afraid. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the famed prince of preacher of another era, once said that the call of Christ to fear not is God's most beautiful, plentiful plant he has sown in his garden. Time and again, you see the seeds planted. Fear not. Just read through the Old Testament and you're going to see God plant the seed. Fear not in the heart of Abraham. 
He plants it in the heart of Isaac, in the heart of Jacob. You see him plant it in the judges, in the kings, in the prophets. Of course, we go to the New Testament where we see Jesus himself plant the seeds. Fear not. Paul, the disciples, plant the seeds. Fear not. You know this to be true. Those seeds have surely been planted by our Lord in your heart, in the garden of your soul, when you have heard time and again the precious promises of the word, be not afraid nor be dismayed, for I am your God, there is no other. Cast all of your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Do not be afraid. Don't fear man. What can man do to you? Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, just present all those requests to God, and He's going to give you peace. And despite all those seeds that have been sown in our hearts and theirs, nevertheless, do you find yourself fearing? We fear. In this great garden of our soul, have you noticed weeds of fear start to pop up? They're here, they're there. Shouldn't surprise us. For the first time, the seed of sin was sown in the Garden of Eden. Do you know what weed popped up from that primordial garden bed? Fear. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and what was the first fruit of that sin, shame, fear, hiding from their Lord, fear. Like a weed in a garden bed, have you found fear in your soul sapping the nutrients, so to speak, from your heart? You come to church week in, week out, you're being fed God's Word, but it doesn't feel like it's actually nourishing you. It's like you chew it up and then you spit it out. It's just not, it's because fear is choking you. You, you hear these calls of Christ to live for him, to take risks for him, and you don't because you're choked by fear. Have you found fear to be like a weed that saps all the water away from the healthy plant? So too, it's sapping all the living water from your soul. Where you come into this room and you see John and the team singing praise to God and you want to sing along with them, but you just feel spiritually dry. You want to feel what the preacher feels and you don't feel it because you feel like all the water, all the nutrients are being sapped out by the weeds of fear in your soul? Have you ever noticed in a garden bed, if you don't address, attack these weeds, what ends up happening? I know this by experience. They become invasive. They start to overtake things. They crowd out the growth of otherwise healthy plants. So too, have you found Fear that you have not addressed, that you have not uprooted, what has it done? It has started to crowd out all of your priorities. You know what you should be doing, but you just rationalize that you don't have time because the truth is you're afraid to do the right thing. You, you don't want to count the cost. You don't want to take up the cross. Fear is choking the life out of you. And I, I, forgive me, I don't want to overextend this analogy, but in Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 23, I want you to see that this text gives us a weed killer. That's the last time I'm going to say that. I want to move away from this analogy. But it does present for us a precious gift from God that will get to the root of the problem. And that precious gift of God that will attack the weeds of sin in your heart is what the Bible calls faith. 
Now, before you tune out, because this would be of the enemy, the word faith is so central to the faith, but it's so common, it's, it's somewhat nebulous that you kind of let it go in one ear and out the other, do you not? We've spent, what, is it six weeks studying this chapter on faith? We've seen the phrase, by faith, some 23 times, and you still are like, I don't really know what it is. I trust, I guess. I, what is faith? I don't know. It's a strange statement. I don't know what to make of faith. I want to show you today what faith will do to the weeds of fear in your soul. First off, it is going to help you see it for what it is. Have you ever noticed weeds can oftentimes look a lot like healthy plants? It's like when I take my little four-year-old daughter with me on a walk, and we see yellow dandelions in somebody's yard, and she thinks they're pretty. She thinks that's what they wanted. I know it's a weed. I one time thought I was going to help my wife by weeding our garden bed, and I left a giant weed that I thought was one of her plants. I misidentified it. Faith is going to help you see fear for what it is. You'll now know it to be what it is. It's unwelcome. It's invasive. It needs to be attacked. Now, how do you attack it? You gardeners know. How do you get a weed? Do you just take scissors and cut it right at the soil line? You all know that's not how it works. My mother had a green thumb. She taught me that if you want to get a weed out, you got to dig underneath. You got to get underneath the surface. You got to get to the root of the problem. You got to sever it at the root. And what I want you to see in this text, that the root of fear, where you got to get to, the root underlying this sin is unbelief. Your fear is not commonplace. It is not just a run-of-the-mill sin. This weed is invasive, and this weed must be severed at its root. And I want you to see that the reason this Hall of Faith chapter exists, and the reason in particular I believe God inspired that we review the life, legacy, and testimony of Moses in verses 23 and following, is to see that if you, dear church, live by faith, you will be freed from the fear that entangles you. You'll be freed from it. Now notice, I don't want to overstate this. I am not saying if you live by faith, you will never battle fear again. What I am saying is you'll be freed from its enslavement. It will not be your master. It will not hold you down. You will not be subjected to it. You can stand up under that temptation as you can all the host of temptations we as mortals battle with. If you live by faith, you too can be freed from fear. And I want to show you how through the life of Moses. By the way, when I studied this text, I wrote four to five different sermon outlines until I landed on this one, because there are a great many ways to approach this text. I wanted to approach it from this particular angle because I want you to see that Moses' faith, what I believe made him a hero of the faith, was how he overcame these fears that are common to man. I want to show you in this text five fears Moses had, and you'll notice that his fears are our fears. They are common to us. So together, let's go to this text, let's see them for what they are, and let's sever them at the root. If you're taking notes, mark this down firstly. If you live by faith, I want you to see that you will be freed from the fear of death, of death. Look, if you will, at verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, he was hidden for three months by his parents. Now, who were his parents? 
This text doesn't name them, but Exodus and Numbers tell us their names were Amram and Jochebed. They were Levites who lived in the 19th dynasty of Egypt, in this wonderful era of Egypt, as Hebrews in this exile down in Egypt. They lived under a tyrannical ruler. We know him as Pharaoh. And Pharaoh was getting a little insecure about the growing numbers of Hebrews, of Jewish people. So he resolved, this was an edict, he declared, that all those Jewish babies needed to be killed. Well, Amram and Jochebed had a baby, a little baby boy, and they now had a decisive choice to make. Do we obey the king, preserve our lives at the cost of our young little boy's life, or we defy the king at enormous personal risk, we're risking our very lives with the hope of saving his. Now the trick is, if they had done the latter, which we see they did, they risked not only their lives and their son's life. So the calculus would have been, let's stay alive and sacrifice this child. Now why didn't they? The reason this text says might not strike you as profound, in fact, it might strike you as puzzling, because it says in verse 23, they did so because they saw that the child was beautiful. What good parent worth of salt doesn't see their child as beautiful? My word, I mean, I must be a hero of the faith, because when my four-year-old was born four years ago, my word, I thought she was the most beautiful thing this world has ever seen. What's going on with that phrase, beautiful? Is Moses uniquely beautiful? I can't help but always think of Charlton Heston when I think of Moses. I don't know about beautiful. What do you do with this? That word, beautiful, astios in the original language, it is probably, most scholars will conclude, it is not referring to his appearance merely. It is probably referring to a unique, appointed destiny that his parents knew. How they knew is not clear. There are some inferences we can take from the Bible that lead us to believe that maybe Amram and Jochebed were somehow, some way uh, told that their son would be the deliverer. Now, here's one of the inferences we can draw. If, I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but if you were to look in the seventh chapter of the book of Acts, do you know what it says? It says that Moses, before he ever met Yahweh at the burning bush, before he ever heard from God on Mount Sinai, when he was still the prince of Egypt, when he confronted his kinsmen uh, out in the city and he killed that Egyptian for hurting the, Egypt, uh, hurting the Hebrew, do you know what Acts 7 says? It says he was puzzled that the Hebrews didn't know that what he was doing was trying to save them. He was puzzled that the Hebrews didn't realize he was their deliverer. Now that should stun us because why did Moses think that? He hadn't spoken to God yet. Who told him he was their deliverer? The inference we can draw is that Moses, who was raised by his birth parents, because if you recall the story, they put him in the basket, Pharaoh's daughter finds him, just so happens his big sister Miriam is nearby. Miriam says, hey, I got somebody who can nurse this baby. Miriam takes uh, the baby Moses back to mama. Jochebed ends up raising him along with Amram until he's old enough to go into Pharaoh's house. Surely the implied message is that he was raised by parents who feared Yahweh and told him who he was. Now, I want to draw your attention back to the remarkable act of faith that Amram and Jochebed demonstrated in this moment. By preserving their son's life at great personal risk, the Bible says they didn't do it out of 
mere maternal or paternal instinct. Because some of you may be thinking, that just doesn't sound like faith because I would do that. I would take great, I would die for my little girl. But the writer of Hebrews, inspired by the Spirit of God, tells us that they did this by faith. So what does that mean? Remember what Hebrews 11.1 says? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Amram and Jacobed were assured down to the core that God's word could be trusted. They knew Yahweh. They believed Yahweh. They knew that if they obeyed God and did not fear the prospect of death, that God would preserve them. They surely knew what we knew, that nobody can harm you if you are in him. Sure, they can take your life, Jesus says, but they can't take your soul. What can man do to you? The worst he can do is take your life, but he cannot touch your immortal soul, for you are his. So you ought not fear the prospect of death. You ought to stare it in the face and recognize that there is a good God whose life is in your hands. He has appointed every day of your life. Your heart will beat as long as he sees fit. You will draw as many breaths as he deems. And so you need not fear and try to grip your life with the vice grip of control saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'm going to do all I can to prevent it. My friends, it's coming and God will see to it when he sees fit. And so let go. And as Jacobed and Amram did, just trust that there is a good God whose life, your life, is in his hands. And if you can walk by faith as they did, you will be freed from the bondage, the fear of death. But if you'll notice in verse 24, there's another layer to this fear that we're going to be freed from. If you live by faith, you'll not only be freed from the fear of death, you'll be freed from the fear of, for lack of a better word, Failure, And I want you to notice what happened to Moses as he aged. In verse 24, it says, By faith, Moses, when he grew up, what happened? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, I want you to think about that loaded statement. What did it mean to be the son of Pharaoh's daughter? It was something akin to royalty, like the Duke of Prince of York. This was one who had unparalleled power. As the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he was basically heir apparent to the mightiest uh, throne of power in the known world of that day. As son of Pharaoh's daughter, he had unparalleled power, unparalleled prestige, unparalleled privilege. Living in this 19th dynasty of Egypt, he had immeasurable wealth, wealth that makes the wealthiest amongst us look like nothing. Have you ever seen King Tut's tomb? King Tut lived about 100 years or so after the day of Moses. That is but a glimmer of the unspeakable wealth of his day. Moses literally had it all. And it says he refused it. He looked all the power, prestige, and privilege afforded him, and he stiff-armed it. He refused it. And what does verse 25 say? Choosing rather what? He exchanged power, prestige, and privilege for mistreatment. How is that possible. Does that not strike you as insane? How did he do that? It says because he saw the pleasures of sin to be what? Fleeting. Fleeting. 
Oh, my friends, for every teenage boy in this room, I pray the word fleeting would be inscribed on the tablet of your soul. I wish I could put fleeting on every screen you own, every tablet in your hand. I wish I could write it on every heart. Sin is pleasurable. Oh, it offers great pleasures, but they are fleeting. But for a moment, they will hit you like a hit, and they will be gone in a moment, leaving you wanting more. And you'll go back, and it will leave you wanting more. They don't last. Sin is, in essence, a lie. It always overpromises and always underdelivers. And Moses finally opened his eyes to see all the promise, all the pleasurable promises of power, prestige, and privilege. They're fleeting. They don't compare to what I can have in him by trusting him. So by faith, he refused them. And he decided that this short-term pain was going to be a worthy investment for long-term gain. And how many of us in this room succumb to the common notion of wanting short-term pleasure at the expense of long-term pain. My friends, if you would just open your eyes and see what Moses saw, if you would just open your eyes and see that sin's pleasures are fleeting, infinite heartache would be gone from your life if you would just get the long game in view and recognize this, that if you live by faith, you too can be freed from the fear of failing in the world's eyes, the fear of measuring up to everybody else's expectations, the fear so many of us have of being something, of having a life worth living. If you just let those dreams go, there are immeasurable pleasures that await you. Forsake the fleeting pleasures of this world and taste immeasurable, unending glories that await you. You'll be freed from the fear of failure. You'll be freed from the fear of death. Thirdly, you'll be freed from the fear of want. Because some of you cynically in this room are thinking, okay, I know I'm going to die, so I'm not letting that fear up in me. I know my identity cannot be wrapped up in what I do. I failed too many times, so I've died to that fear. But Kyler, life is expensive. I got a family to feed. Not all that's good is free or cheap. I, I, I have to have stuff. I need stuff. I don't want to want. I want, I want stuff. I need stuff. And so be stunned with me as we look at verse 26 and behold what Moses did. This really should floor us. For in verse 26 it says, Moses considered the reproach of Christ. That is another way of saying being persecuted, being rejected for the sake of Christ's name. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt? That's insane. That's what you might call preacher hyperbole. He's exaggerating. I mean, how could you say being in want is more valuable than having it all? How could you say being rejected, reproached for the sake of Christ's name is of greater value than having it all, having every treasure this world has to offer? Is that not nuts? Moses had an awakening, an investment strategy that I pray you see. You see, Moses discovered what all the martyrs and missionaries and the most missional amongst us have learned over the ages. Have you ever wondered how the martyrs did it? 
how these men and women of faith stood before kings and princes and burned to death, were slaughtered for the sake of Christ's name. If you haven't studied them, you ought to. There are many books out there that detail it. They are horrific, but they are soul-stirring. For these men and women looked death in the eye and said, worth it, more valuable. How on earth could a man like Jim Elliott, the famed martyr missionary to Ecuador in the 1950s, how on earth could he possibly say with integrity, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose? That seems ridiculous. How could missionaries that you've sat on pews beside in this very room leave the comfort of Charlotte, the security of their local school, the pleasures of their own home, and go to far away hard places? How could the most missional in this room sacrificially give of their resources for the sake of others to the point that it hurts? You give to where you actually feel it. Your home is a revolving door opening up to the needs of others. How is this possible? It's because those folks have seen what Moses saw. They saw that the reproach of Christ was of greater infinite value than all the treasures of Egypt. They, in other words, by faith, died to the fear of want. They believed at last God's precious promise, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And how many of us, and I stand before you as chief amongst you as a sinner, you assent to that statement, but the truth is most of your treasures are invested down here. And you want to hold them with one hand by saying amen up here. Oh, may God open our hands, all of us in one accord, open our hands and with Moses say, we consider the reproach of Christ greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Oh, would God open our eyes, open our hearts to believe, to see that it is a worthwhile investment to store up all of our treasures in heaven. So by faith, my friends, unroot that unbelief you got underneath it. The reason your hands are grasped, the reason you won't let go is because deep down what's underneath that fear of what is an unbelief. It is an unbelief in God's promise. You don't actually believe it. I don't actually believe it. So may God in his grace by faith sever the root of that sin in all of our hearts and we too can taste the freedom that Moses had. Freedom from death, a fear of death. A freedom from the fear of failure. A freedom from the fear of want. But if you'll notice with me in verse 27, here comes a fourth fear that Moses overcame, which might prove more difficult for you to overcome. For I want you to see in verse 27 that Moses also overcame. He was freed from a fear of uncertainty. None of us like uncertainty. Uncertainty is like a heavy blanket that is just dampening your soul. None of us are immune. That's why young children stand on the edge of the deep end of the pool with knees knocking, not wanting to jump in the deep end because they're uncertain dad's going to catch them. That's why teenagers are filled with the anxiety of fear because they're not sure, they're uncertain how they'll be received in the halls of their school. That's why so many young parents are filled with uncertainty on whether or not they have what it takes to raise their children. Filled with uncertainty on, is God going to provide? Filled with uncertainty, is God going to bring my wayward child home? Feared with uncertainty, is God going to preserve my health? Am I going to live another year? If only, if only, if only God spelled it out. Except if he did, 
If he did make plain with full certainty all that lies before us, my friends, do you know what we would be living by? We would be living by sight, not by faith. You remember Paul? We live by faith and not by sight. Do you remember the writer of Hebrews? What is faith? It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Moses in verse 27, notice what he does. It says, by faith he left Egypt. He leaves town. The certainty, the security, the stability of Egypt. He leaves it and he goes into the wilderness. And it says, he wasn't afraid of the anger of the king for he endured. Now that word endured is critical. Circle it, underscore it. For the word endured suggests to us that Moses knew that where he was heading was uncertain. Because you don't endure anything that's easy. You endure things that are difficult. To endure is to persevere, is to press on, is to take another step not knowing what lies ahead. Moses endured. Now how? Why? Was Moses just a glutton for punishment? Did he just take another step because he wanted to take another step? Or he was so tired of Egypt? What was the secret to Moses' persevering faith? What was his faith in? The latter half of verse 27 tells us. For in verse 27, the writer tells us that Moses saw him who is invisible. Now, I stated that wrong. Did you notice? It doesn't say he saw him. It says he endured as seeing him. In the original language, it should almost read as if he saw him. This verse, in other words, is not talking about Moses seeing God in the burning bush. It is not talking about Moses seeing God on Mount Sinai. It is saying that before Moses ever saw Yahweh, he left Egypt with a kind of faith that was so strong, it was as if he saw God who is otherwise invisible. He took the next step. He persevered. He died to the fear of uncertainty because he was banking on God's good promises to him. And I wonder, do you? Are you able to walk by faith and not by sight? Can you take one step forward? Can you die to the fear of uncertainty? You can, by grace, through faith alone. If you live by faith, you too can be freed from this. You will see, as Paul saw, that this light momentary affliction does not compare to the weight of glory that awaits you. If you just bank your life on his promises. Go to him in his book and start marking all those precious promises he's given to you and build your life on them. Trust them. By faith, do this as seeing him. Keep on looking to him. Get your eyes up off the horizon and look to him. As the old song goes, take your eyes up and look into Jesus' face. Look full, it says, in his wonderful face. And what will happen? All the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. Oh, would we raise our sights, get our eyes off the horizon, two feet in front of us, and look full at his precious promises. And by faith, not by sight, take the next step, endure. For when you do, you too will die 
to the fear. You'll be freed from the fear of uncertainty, freed from the fear of want, freed from the fear of failure, freed from the fear of death, but there is one final fear. I told you there were five. And this fifth one is a doozy. It's the one that might do you in. In fact, it's, it's so profound that I found myself in preparation this week asking again and again, oh God, do I believe this? And is there any evidence I believe this? For I want you to see fifth and finally, if you do live by faith, you will be freed fifth and finally from the fear of ridicule or persecution, opposition. Few in this room have. Few, I trust, have ever experienced acute persecution, perhaps some. But all of us know what it's like to fear ridicule, and here's why. Test yourself. Have you found yourself tight-lipped around your unbelieving spouse? Polite with your neighbor? Quiet at work? Secretly, but respectfully ashamed of the gospel? Mum with all who need to hear? lest you be ridiculed? Have you ever found yourself desperately wanting the approval of men, the approval of the academy, the approval of culture such that you only allow your Christianity to be evident in rooms like this, but you leave these doors and you just find yourself quiet? By the way, I do. I'm a pastor, and in my neighborhood, I have to fight this fight of faith of just not wanting to have the conversation, sitting on the airplane and not wanting to have the conversation in I just want you to see what happened with Moses here in verse 28. For in verse 28, what does it say? It says, he, by faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood. Now just consider what was actually happening in this moment. Remember Moses when he came back from his sojourn in, uh, out of Egypt in Midian and he comes back to Egypt. God uses him to display these nine fantastic plagues. Remarkable. But then the tenth most gruesome one is prophesied. I am going to send an angel of death to come and take out all the firstborn. Now all the Hebrews and the Egyptians are probably thinking, you know what, he's probably going to do it. Because we've seen the last nine, and he's done it all. So we probably shouldn't doubt this. we got to get out of Dodge. we got to go. If this angel of death's coming, we got to get out of here so he doesn't get near us. But what does God command? He commands Moses and all of God's people to stay. And do what? Take the blood of an unblemished lamb, dip a hyssop branch in that blood, and just go sprinkle it on the doorposts of your house. Go inside that house, and when my death angel comes, the destroyer, as this verse says, comes, he will pass over your house. Now remember, they are not doubting the supernatural. They have seen it nine times over. I think what they were probably doubting in that moment is whether or not doing that blood thing was a good idea. Like, I've, I mean, this is at the risk of our lives here. I don't want to lose my firstborn child. I'm getting out of Dodge. I don't want to be anywhere near this. But Moses, by faith, 
took God at his word. He trusted the otherwise insane. And so too, we are downstream from this Passover, for we believe in the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, whose blood was poured out on a cross on Calvary. And we stand here 2,000 years later from that momentous moment, and we say with full integrity to a lost world, we believe that this Judean killed on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, died for us. We believe he's alive today. We believe he's triumphantly, miraculously resurrected from the dead. We believe he hears the cries of our hearts. We believe he's coming again. We believe he will save us from our sins. We believe this, and yet, we believe it in this room, and we take one step out, and all of a sudden our mouths get closed. And we're less inclined to say it. Now, I stand amongst you in this great throng of fear-filled humanity, inclined to be fearful of ridicule, fear of man. And if this is your burden, if fearing others is a great struggle for you, may I conclude our time today with a diagnosis and prescription. If you fear man there is a very good chance that man has become so big in your eyes that God is getting small. The bigger men get, the smaller God gets. And they have become bigger in your line of sight than your God has. And if that's you, here is my prescription for that diagnosis. Oh, if you'd hear anything, hear this today. If you want to live by faith, and be freed from the fear of ridicule. Give yourself to this book, for when you do, and you open its pages, you are going to find, page after page, a God so big, with every turning page, He is going to get bigger. With every turned chapter, He's going to get bigger. With every book you pass, He is going to get bigger, that men are going to begin shrinking in your eyes. And this God is going to become huge. You are going to see a God who spoke and the world came into being. You are going to see a God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You are going to see a God who knows every hair on your head. You are going to see a God who knows every thought of your heart, who counts every breath you draw, who knows every beat of your heart. You are going to see a God who calls us out of darkness into wonderful light, who displays unspeakable miracles. You are going to see a God who kept every promise. You are going to see a great warrior God who wins finally and decisively. You are going to see a very, very big God. So give yourself to it. Start today. Let that be your takeaway. This Lord's Day, you go home, you pick a highlighter, you pick your color, and you start opening your Bible and find every verse that shows you God is big, and you just start highlighting it. You start marking it. And before you know it, your Bible is going to be saturated with ink. It's going to be a hot mess. It's going to bleed through the pages. You're not going to see it, but it is going to be one living, abiding testimony that this is not a quaint book. This is an unspeakable, glorious gift from God to us. It is an, a living, abiding testimony that our God is a big God. And if you do, you give yourself to this book, and you behold with me our great big God. Watch. Watch. Watch yourself begin 
to be freed from the fear of death. Freed from the fear of failure. From the fear of want, of uncertainty, and of ridicule. Look to this word. Behold this great God. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim. And all your fears will shrink. Would you join me as we pray? And with your heads bowed, I want to earnestly ask that you consider with me anew how big our God is. He is indeed bigger than all the fears you harbor in your heart. So would you see those weeds for what they are? Would you sever them at the root this day? Would you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face? For when you do, the things of this world will indeed grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. Oh, God Almighty, would you by the power of your spirit come and do what I cannot, and that is impress the weight of this text on the hearts of your people. Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word? Help us, oh God, to see you. For when we do, we trust that all of our fears of death, of failure, of want, of uncertainty, our fears of ridicule of men will shrink. They'll be as nothing before your glory and grace. Do this, I pray, for the sake of Jesus' name and the good of this church I love. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand to your feet? As we stand and we sing, there are pastors down here at the front. They're here to pray with you. The invitation to you.